As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Matters of Life and Death, a podcast from Premier Unbelievable. Well, hello and welcome to Matters of Life and Death. Um, As always, I'm Tim Wyatt and I'm joined by my dad, John Wyatt. Hi, John. Hi. And once again, we're pleased to say that we're joined for a second part of our conversation with Rhys Laverty from the Davenant Institute. Hi, Rhys. Hello, good to be with you again. Um, so we, we spoke last week about um, this interesting book that, that you've been involved in at the Davenant Institute called Protestant Social Teaching. Um, we, if you haven't heard that episode, do recommend you go back and listen to that because that will frame a lot of what we're talking about today. Um, and that's a kind of an attempt, as you put it, to kind of uh, recover some of the wisdom of the Protestant tradition uh when it comes to social ethics and and kind of issues in in society that christians could should have a view on and and that catholics have been developing a body of teaching on and perhaps has been a bit more disparate and fragmented and and overlooked by the protestant half of the church um uh and john uh has contributed a chapter to the book uh on on death and dying um do you want to to give us a brief summary of how that kind of came about and, and the kind of key argument of that of that chapter Yeah, uh, so the whole theme of the book is how um, is there a distinctively Protestant understanding on some of these ethical issues as compared with historical Catholic um, attitudes? And and as we've discussed before, I've been very, very interested in this medieval tradition called the art of dying, Ars Moriendi, which uh, started, it's a whole group of documents which started circulating in the uh, in the medieval period um particularly in the the 14th and 15th centuries um and they were related to um the fact that at that period in europe life was incredibly fragile there was uh, huge amounts of of instability <coughs> warfare and also plague plague was sweeping across europe and and the great fear for many many people was that you might die without the support of a priest you know that you might suddenly become infected or caught up in violence and um, and this caused a a great deal of anxiety and so these the interesting things about these documents is that they weren't intended for uh, clerics or religious people they were they were a kind of self-help documents for ordinary people and um, a modern writer said that uh, they could be described as dying for dummies. 
And um, <laughs> I like that title so much, I wanted to call my book Dying for Dummies, but unfortunately, <laughs> copyright <laughs> meant that it wasn't possible. But, but, but that idea, I think, is really um, interesting, that uh, we can't rely on the priest, so we're going to help ourselves. And because a lot of people at that age, in that age, were, were illiterate, um, these documents had very, very dramatic uh, woodcut images of um, of um, the dying person lying on a bed, and then um, various things being them being attacked by demons, and and uh, it was sort of acting out the um, the process. So the idea in the medieval period was was that the the deathbed was it was a, a site of fearsome b battles going on, and that. Um, the most important question was how you died because the you know the medieval belief was that unless you uh, died with in in forgiveness um and and in good standing with the church then then you could well have a have a fearsome future in hell so um the these documents provided a way of 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 helping people to um, negotiate um, the process of dying and they it's interesting that as the um, as the Reformation happens I found it I went back and, and, and read about it. it was it was really interesting to see how it, it evolved um, as, Cath as as reformers and Reformation people took these documents they they subtly changed um, so that one of, one of the features of the medieval period was that death, the, the views were very much influenced by Stoicism, which regarded death actually as a, as a quite a positive thing. That um, as the the reform the reforma reformers uh, took these writings and, and, and changed them, it it became the focus changed, and it was much more about the individual's conscience, about uh, seeking forgiveness for their own. Uh, guilt and failures about trusting on God's uh, forgiveness and looking forward to a future hope there's, there's much more of an emphasis about future hope um, so just fascinating to see that it, it's continuity basically um, mm. the, the reformers didn't wipe out the whole Ars Moriendi tradition but they subtly changed it in light with their new understanding and Reese, when you're considering John's John's contribution on death and dying, do you agree that it kind of elucidates some of the other themes that some of the other writers are pulling out elsewhere in the book about the continuities and the the discontinuities? Yeah, I think it's um, very much in step with the other other contributions in that regard. Um, John gets into some some great detail about you know what was in these these medieval documents and evidences that you know, that there there was a lively Christianity, a lively faith in the medieval era. It is not that the apostles died and then no one was a Christian again until Martin Luther came along. Um, but actually, you know, we, we should assume very charitably the, the kind of piety and the sincerity and the faith of lay people in the medieval era, um, even if we may actually think that the theologians and the bishops and the popes and whatever at the time were, were in some significant error. Um, but you've got lively people who have perhaps not been taught very well, um, but who want to do whatever it is they think God actually requires of them. Um, 
and then yeah as john says the reformers come in they don't want to do away with this entirely but there are there are tweaks and, and changes and if you look, look at stuff kind of you know elsewhere in the reformation that I guess john didn't have have the the chance to um to, to include you see that in other things like and in the first draft of the book of common prayer which is what 1549 um you still have there an order for what they call the the, the anointing of the sick which is still one of the the seven sacraments of the Roman Catholic Church, you know, as a particular kind of special set aside thing. And um, whereas Protestants would only have baptism and and uh, the Lord's Supper in that regard. Um, so the early Book of Common Prayer you still have an anointing of the sick, um, but then later it becomes a visitation of the sick when the Book of Common Prayer is is reformed. So it's not about actually kind of giving someone this special kind of you know booster shot of grace so that they definitely maybe get into heaven um but it's rather about counseling them and pointing them to christ and and reassuring them of what they already have so one of the interesting things is that rather than just focusing on the that final deathbed struggle of good against evil the uh, protestant writers emphasize the importance of it's really about holy living which uh, if you live in a in a holy and godly way this prepares you for holy dying and mm-hmm. and so living well living every day um to to Christ and 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 living in the knowledge as though of it might be your last as though it might be your last exactly that 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 comes a a much a, a greater emphasis which which i think is is a really healthy and positive thing and how does the kind of protestant tradition evolve in the subsequent centuries around death and dying because uh you know i don't know about you but i don't think there is that much emphasis in contemporary protestantism about the idea of kind of focusing on dying well and 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 recapturing an idea of of um death as as a kind of point of of um i don't know reflection and contemplation and preparation is it's more either not talked about at all or it's something that's feared yeah, well, I'm afraid what then happens, uh, it, and it really, this is a post-Second World War phenomenon, is that because of the success of modern westernized medicine, death becomes increasingly medicalized. And so instead of every um, home being, you know, a, a site of people dying, it was, it was absolutely routine, just children and um, young people, older people. Every family would have had the experience of being around a deathbed and 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 all that increasingly death becomes a medical phenomenon which takes place in hospitals in professional institutions and there's a kind of death denial starts to take place you know that we can just pretend it doesn't happen you know that's just something that happens to other people and we don't want to think about it we don't want to talk about it Uh, it just happens behind curtains with with professionals and machinery and um and and then this this idea of the constant battle against death death is an enemy and we are going to fight to the bitter end um and there's this uh tragic comic quote from a funeral director in the states who says that the communist uh verse which people want to have read uh, read out at their funerals is i have fought the good fight uh from timothy but <laughs> They don't mean and, and lost this, exactly. <laughs> they don't mean. They say that what they mean is that this person battled to the end, you know, to the very last gasp to battle to stay alive, you know, which was not exactly what Paul was talking about. Mm. Yeah, yeah, and I, I think um, what what you possibly do see is though that it's it's in the Roman Catholic countries that 
that um, modern medicalized view of of death is perhaps most resisted because of various kind of rituals and traditions around death. Um, so it's much more common, say, still now in Roman Catholic countries to have an open casket, um, which is just utterly unheard of, I think, you know, in, in kind of uh, England today. Um, you even see it in, I don't know if any, either of you have ever watched uh, Derry Girls sitcom on Channel 4. Um, yes, set in highly Catholic, recommended. Catholic, <laughs> yes, very funny. Set in Catholic Derry in the 1990s. Um, but there's one pasty Protestant English boy who, you know, is sent to Derry and, and has to join the gang. And they're at a funeral and they go into this into the side room to have an argument and the, their aunt is there dead in the coffin and these Catholic Irish girls are just having it out and then the English boy says, are we not going to talk about the fact there's a dead body here? And all the Catholics are like, oh, have you never seen a dead body before, James? Um, no, I haven't, which is just the universal experience of most kind of, you yeah. know, pasty English, English fellas like myself and Tim. Um, whereas it's in some Catholic countries, they're a bit more, a bit more alive to death because they have these traditions. Yeah. Mm. yeah that's so what's really interesting, I think, is that uh, in terms of care of the dying, the, the, the Catholic, certainly in the, in the UK, there were Catholic institutions, hospices, but uh, basically run by nuns and and uh, religious uh, professionals uh, with very little um, modern medical input. And, and fascinatingly, it's uh, Cicely Saunders who came from an evangelical background um, and who was uh, closely connected with uh, and, and, and motivated by a very strong uh, evangelical and Protestant faith. Uh, it, it's she who sort of starts the modern palliative care movement, um, and it, and it's very much closely related to her um, understanding of that that dying well is is an opportunity. That um, one of her slogans was: "Not only will we care for you and help you to die well, but we'll help you to live before you die." And that understanding mm. that those last precious weeks. Uh, days, hours could be a very positive time of reconciliation, and of um, of positive growing spiritual growth, and um, and not just a fearsome, terrible thing to be to be frightened of. And is it true to say the hospice movement, certainly for the f- in first few kind of decades as it spread, retained a quite Christian ethos at its heart? before it was maybe slightly eventually taken over by the NHS and kind of secularised? <laughs> well, it's an interesting story. Um, I think it was quite right from the beginning, um, many of the pioneers of the, uh, the hospices uh, were concerned that if this just become swallowed up by the NHS, it would lose its distinctive Christian and um, holistic emphasis. And so, uh, to begin with, uh, all the hospices were independent uh, charities and retained their independent ethos. Um, increasingly, though, there was a re- recognition that the, these insights that, that Sicily had could be applied much more widely out, outside of a distinctively uh, Christian context. And that kind of teaching, the palliative care movement, has spread across the world and has been incorporated in uh, secular and independent uh, medical systems. It's an interesting debate about whether the the danger is, I think, that that 
many hospices are losing that uh, distinctively Christian perspective. They're retaining a basic ethos of uh, of care and respect. But, um, you know, as we talked about in previous um, episodes, one of the sort of, I think, really ominous things that's happening across the world is that in countries where euthanasia has been legalised, this it is now increasingly entering into palliative care wards and into hospices where so it, mm. it becomes a kind of you know you t- you pays your money and takes your choice you know if, if you want to be looked after here until you die we'll provide it but if you want to be killed we'll also do that and Cicely Saunders and the pioneers of the movement would have been completely horrified by that development they they saw what they were trying to do as something quite different from the euthanasia movement to Matters of Life and Death, a podcast from Premier Unbelievable. And it's quite striking to me that both, you know, here in the UK, um, it, one of the, the medical kind of specialities which remains quite resolutely opposed on the whole to sister dying is, is, the, is palliative care doctors. Um, um, and that they seem to, you know, even though most of them today aren't going to be practicing Christians who work as who have specialised in palliative care, but they think there's something about the the particular approach to dying that is baked into palliative care that seems to steer them, or kind of, you know, gives them pause before for before lumping, throwing their support behind assisted dying, which is becoming increasingly popular among other parts of the the medical profession. But as you say, that was the case in other countries. I know in Canada. For example, when when their version medical assistance in dying was first legalized, the kind of Canadian Palliative Care Association was quite hostile. But over the relatively short period, five six years since, um, it's gradually uh, it's kind of spread throughout the hospice movement. And now it's uh, much less common for hospices to kind of declare themselves opting out entirely of MAID. And and as you say, it's becoming one of the suite of options you get when you're when you're admit, admitted to hospice. So philosophically, there is there is a, there's a fundamental difference here. That so, the the palliative care movement, which comes out of this Christian view, basically still regards God as the final arbiter, uh, the one who holds life and death in his own hands, and therefore the philosophy that lies behind palliative care is that you allow death to occur by natural processes. And you don't intervene either to try desperately to keep the patient alive medically, nor do you intervene in order to to kill them, to short-circuit the process. You allow death to occur naturally whilst you focus on maximising the quality of life, maximising the the experience in those last few, uh, few hours and days. And interestingly... That makes sense in a fundamentally Judeo-Christian worldview, but it doesn't seem to make sense to many secular people because it's all about mm. control. You know, why why cannot I control my dying? Why can't I say I want to die on Tuesday and I want my family to be there on Tuesday and Tuesday is the day that will suit us all. Thank you very much. 
and this idea that we might be lingering on for days, for weeks, not knowing when this person's going to die. I mean, that doesn't make any sense at all. This is the 21st century. We've got control. We've got choice. And, and you can see, can't you, that that is defending the idea that death is part of nature and a natural process and we should allow it to occur um, without our control. You can see how that is so antithetical to the modern way of thinking. Mm, I think um, very right that it, without a Judeo-Christian view of, of the universe and of God as our ultimate good, then those things become entirely conceivable um and when you look at historic protestant social teaching the idea of a society that is not self-consciously under god whether that is as a protestant nation or as a catholic nation is is inconceivable um obviously you know, atheism was a very very minority interest in the 1500s um but um i think that Christians and especially British Christians are embrace very very quickly the idea of a kind of free liberal society where we don't impose um, any form of religious belief upon society, um, where society is not explicitly directed towards God, is not Christian in any way. Um, we kind of think that that's the best best option is to kind of go along to get along, um, and yet that leads us to this situation where you have. Um, euthanasia um, running rampant and extending its reach more and more and leads us to all these other kind of social issues that, that the book addresses um, and I think that most evangelicals don't really know how to kind of square the circle here that we're deeply opposed to those things we don't think society should have those things and but we also don't want to make society explicitly Christian um, we don't want to tell society that it has um, has a God to whom it needs to give an account um, well, what on earth do we do? Um, and I think we're we're such political quietists that we are scared of kind of speaking anything about um, God as our ultimate good or God as our ultimate judge into the public square. Yeah, and, and I think there is a way to square that circle. And it was it was what I <clears throat> inherited initially from John Stott, who who said, yes, of course, you know, we're a small minority. We have no right to impose our views on the rest of society. It, as though we could. I mean, what chance are we of doing that anyway? But that doesn't mean that we should be silent. Instead, what mm. we should do is we should try to persuade people. We should use the opportunities that a democratic society gives us of of uh, putting arguments of. And he t he used to talk about it, ethical apologetics. We we should we should try to persuade people. And and I, in my own small way, that's what I've tried to do in making arguments against why, why why Britain should not legalize euthanasia uh, mm. the arguments are not based on the fact that uh, God is the author of life and death we have no right to choose the timing of our own death because I know that that is not going to have a great deal of traction in in British society and British Parliament so th so the arguments are based much more around what are the consequences <clears throat> the the risks and the benefits what who are the vulnerable people in our society how might they be adversely um, affected by this law and is there a better way uh, is palliative care making sure that there is better provision of palliative care across the country isn't that a better way than legalizing euthanasia 
And I think you can describe those those things that we might we would contend for. You know, we continue con- to contend for the the illegal illegalization of euthanasia or you know the illegalization to whatever extent of abortion. And those are things that we could say you you have to believe if you're a Christian, but you don't have to be a Christian to believe um, because there are, as you've just said. Um, common sense and common good and natural law arguments for a lot of those things i find this conversation really fascinating because over the last kind of 10 years it's kind of been a truism among christians of my kind of generation and and inclination which is that the end of christendom was a good thing and that it's positive that we're no longer in a society which is kind of nominally steeped in in Christianity and where the state and the church were variously commingled and merged and and actually it's positive that people aren't nominally Christian by default anymore um, for various kind of missional reasons and it seems correct me if I'm wrong Reese, that you might have a slightly more different take on that I I think that is I get it I think it is one of the most misguided judgments that British evangelicals and very senior leaders in British evangelicalism uh, have made. Um, cultural Christianity, I would say, ultimately is a net good. Um, I think that opinion that it's good that Christendom has ended um, comes from a very skewed view of what love for neighbour is. Um I think of a to take a personal example. You will both know my uncle, um, who uh, is a very faithful Christian, very long-serving Christian youth worker. Um, none of his children are walking with the Lord. Very sadly, they're all kind of young, young adults. Um, and two of his daughters got uh, pregnant at very young ages. Everything in our culture would tell those girls well, there is no reason not to get rid of this child. It's utterly without consequence. Um, go ahead and do it and get on with your life. Uh, and yet, both of those girls, uh, not at all professing Christians, but re- you know, with a great deal of cultural Christianity uh, carried around with them, um, couldn't, couldn't at all countenance the idea of getting rid of that child. Um, so I think that, you know, reveling in the decline of cultural Christianity because, oh, it makes evangelism easier, um, is... It's equivalent to at the end of James, where it's kind of talking about you know, or you have faith, faith, um, and say I bless my brother, but you don't actually serve him or help him. Um, we we want to kind of you know bless people spiritually and want them to know the gospel. And that's easier if they don't if they realise they're not actually a Christian. But actually, if you're not willing to um, kind of contend for the, the cultural influence of Christianity just for their physical well-being, then you're not really caring for them. And we're running, kind of running out of time, but I wanted to dwell lastly, uh, what what do you kind of impact do you hope the book will have on the Protestant church moving forward and its approach to social ethics? You know, do you do you hope it kind of charts a way forward for for us to kind of deepen and renew our interest in some of these concerns and kind of put to death our quietism, as it were? Yes, definitely. Um, the, the book is, the chapters are relatively short, um, 5,000 odd words each. So, you know, you can read one chapter in a, in a sitting in, in an hour or so, um, go away, digest it and, and read another one, whatever topics interest you. Um, aimed at, at pastors um, at that sort of level, not too academic a level. Um, or if you're a reader, I think I think it would, it would benefit you. Um, and yeah, the hope is that actually we will begin to see the need for ethical formation as, as part of our discipleship so it's not just about teaching people you know what a chiasm is 
um, and <laughs> you know what the key words in the passage are and what the ma- what the main point is. Um, <laughs> but actually, um, Christians have never approached scripture in that way. Um, as if there's just one main point to get out of each passage that happens to be in front of you. But they've always been taking things from across the scriptures and formulating in a wise way and seeing what does the whole kind of um, panoramic view of scripture have to say about these things. That's why we have the doctrine of the Trinity, where Trinity is not in the Bible, but we look across what the whole of scripture says and we can take this deep reflective thing that actually is a matter of orthodoxy. Like if you don't believe in the Trinity, you're not a Christian. Um, and I think we can do that to some extent with ethical practice that actually, you know, there are, there are things we can say based on scripture using our wise reflection um, about these ethical and social issues. Um, it's great that we've kept the main thing, the main thing for the last 150 years as evangelicals have contended for their lives. Um, but if we do have that sense now that, OK, the kind of, there's been a week from the chaff, we know who is a Christian, who isn't a Christian, cultural Christianity's declined. The thing to then do, I think, is to be like, okay, well, let's disciple deeply and well the few that we have, rather than just go out and create lots more shallow recruits, which is the problem that we apparently had in the first place. There were all these shallow Christians who weren't really Christians and weren't disciples. Okay, we've got rid of them. But what do we what do we want to do now? Oh, just go and create a load more. No, we need to deeply disciple people when it comes to ethics. I mean, what strikes me is that we have, uh, you know, over the over the last 50 years say if you again i'm sorry about harking back on the past but back in the 1960s 1970s there was very very little serious scholarship coming from an orthodox protestant reformed perspective and Mm. what we have now uh astonishingly you know 50 years later is is a wealth of excellent high quality scholarship across the range, demonstrating really profound, insightful Christian thinking uh, on, a, on a, a range of, of social issues. And, and this book is, is part of that. Um, mm-hmm. What it, my concern is that there's a still a kind of anti-intellectualism, um, that there's this wealth of scholarship sitting there in libraries and in databases on, on hard drives, and yet, the connecting that with the everyday life of of, of mm-hmm. Christians, evangelical Christians, Protestant Christians, um, is exceptionally difficult. And 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 it mm-hmm. seems as though most church leaders and most <clears throat> ordinary Christians are just either uninterested or completely unaware of of the riches that are there. Um, I can't remember if this episode or the last one mentioned, you know, those those people who were once called doctors of the church, you know, those who are kind of set aside to do particular deep theological thinking. Um, and we talked a bit about institution building um, planning for the kind of the, the world ahead, the negative world, some call it, where, you know, Christians are on, on the back foot. Um, and we, we look around, our, our pastors have great books in their studies written by people with PhDs, people who've sat in, whether it's, you know, theology departments at secular universities or in the, you know, postgraduate departments of Bible colleges and seminaries. And we're glad that our pastors have those books. Um, But if we're not thinking about uh, training more doctors of the church and keeping the intellectual arm of the church alive, then we're not really thinking about where those books are going to keep come from. Uh, We're not really thinking about, you know, what the 
what the what the um, influences upon those who are going to pastor our churches are going to be. Um, so it's it's immensely short-sighted, this anti-intellectualism, which is a particularly British thing. Talk, talk about why that is, um, I think. Um, but yeah, we need to be thinking hard about that, that, that intellectual side of the church, whether that's in people we employ in our churches with a special role or that churches or denominations kind of employ together and share, share that person's wisdom, um, or whether um, it's things that happen in our seminaries or, or Bible colleges or whatever. Um, it's something that we need kind of strategic thinking on. Yeah. Hmm. Well, we've run out of time again. We could talk about this for a lot longer, I suspect, but we'll have to draw it to a close there. Thanks so much, um, Reese. Could you mind just remind us, our listeners, once more, if they'd like to get hold of Protestant social teaching, what's the easiest way to do that? Yeah, you could go to davenantinstitute.org and follow through to our bookstore and find it there. Um, or you can just hop onto Amazon. Um, all of our printing is done via Amazon, so it comes directly from them anyway. Um, and just search Protestant Social Teaching. Full title is Protestant Social Teaching and Introduction and um, should come up. I, b- I believe we are maybe number one in the the um, Christian ethics uh, category on Amazon somewhere, something like that. Um, it's done very well. It's, it's our best-selling book so far um, in kind of uh, nearly 10 years of, of Davenant's existence. So we're very pleased with it. So just you know, join the party, everyone. <laughs> Get on the bandwagon before your friends start thrusting their copies into your hands and telling them you must read yes. this. Yeah, what turns up in your stocking at Christmas. <laughs> Would you describe it as a stocking filler, Greece? Uh, yeah, or we'll give it a Halloween, you know, as, a, as, a, as an age-appropriate Yeah, treat. maybe that's more accurate. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, well, thanks so much, Reese. It's been uh, brilliant to have you on, on the, this episode and last week as well. Uh, really fascinating digging into some of these big ideas. Um, uh, and thanks to all for, everyone for listening. Um, as always, you can get in touch with us by emailing molad at premier.org.uk. Uh, and there's plenty more on John's website, particularly around this theme of death and dying that we've been talking about earlier, um, including, of course, his own book, Dying Well, a very short, readable tome, I recommend, which you can find links to to buy or even get as an audio book, I believe, now as well, or through, through the website. Uh, but that's all for this week. Uh, thanks for listening, and we'll speak to you again next time. Bye-bye. Life and Death, a podcast from Premier Unbelievable.